0: This is the first inaugural entry into something that might happen again. But the question was, would people come out on a Tuesday night to hear about science? And um, this is pretty great. So thank <laughs> you for the encouragement. I'm Glenn Fleischman. I'm a, a local uh, Seattle-based technology reporter. And um, I write for The Economist and Macworld and Boing Boing. I write about bitcoins and nanos- nanosatellites and uh, whether Voyager 1 has left the magnetic influence of the sun and um, all sorts of things. I write about analog photography sometimes, too, and uh, uh, I've been podcasting for many years, and it's it's always exciting to do something live. of wanted the, to take the occasion of uh, our guest here, Katie Mack, was going to be passing through town. She's here for the uh, astronomical meeting that was uh, last week. thought it'd be great to have an in-person conversation. Then we get the excitement of having you all here to talk about science, ask questions, and have a live conversation. So that's the, the impetus behind this, and I wanted to thank Ada's Books for hosting us. I'm a a uh, member of the co-working space called The Office, that's upstairs. A wonderful place uh, to, to work and hang out and uh, get things done. And it's great to come into a bookstore every day, um, nothing like that. And uh, as somebody who has had most of his stuff published online for the last decade, it's still great to come and feel books and see books. And uh, I'd also like to thank GeekWire, which is going to host the recorded version of this event and uh, thank them. They're a technology site. They focus on the Northwest. It's a regional site, and again, it has that kind of uh, nice element of being local. They're actually writing about companies they know, and they've covered for years. Todd Bishop and John Cook are the founders of the site and really respect their work and glad to be with them. And so the person who are here to hear is Dr. Mack, Dr. Katie Mack, from Australia. She's actually from America. I'm sorry. Yeah. But she's in Australia now. So, yeah. uh so thank you for coming out tonight to talk about astrophysics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so Thank, thank you thank you guys for coming and, and clogging up the aisles and everything it's really it's really great to see so many people interested in science so, so awesome yeah.
0: so you may have read her biography for those listening away or later in this podcast I'll just briefly introduce her she studied at Caltech Princeton Cambridge and now at the University of Melbourne University in Australia she's born and raised in America and, and working abroad in a postdoctoral degree so Katie's not only a researcher, her area of focus is on dark matter, but she's also a writer and a communicator. She's a science communicator who's contributed to Slate, Sky and Telescope, Time.com, The Economist uh, now demise Babbage blog, which was one of my homes as well, and recently to BuzzFeed about Interstellar, as those of you here earlier <laughs> heard. And so we're going to talk about a bunch of things. Katie's got a lot of interests, and uh, we're going to try to pitch this for a general audience that um, – like myself has a, my background is more on the technology side. I've always been a science nerd, and I love space to pieces. Love everything about it. And so the, uh, the purpose tonight is to elucidate. I'm the, uh, the, the somewhat uh, ignorant, somewhat informed observer asking questions to get someone who really knows what's going on to explain what's happening. So maybe we should start with dark matter. Is okay. I, think, <laughs> I think dark energy has better press uh, agent because I've heard a lot more about dark energy. Can you explain what the difference, you know, what we're looking at when we're talking about dark energy versus dark matter?
1: Okay, so, so dark matter and dark energy are really different in terms of how they act. The reason they're both called dark is because we can't see them. And as far as we know, that's a really fundamental aspect of both of these things is that they don't interact with light the way that other things do. Well, I'll start with dark matter. So dark matter is sort of my subject area. And so dark matter is, is a kind of matter. So matter is something that has mass, that ha- gravitates. But the weird thing about dark matter is that it doesn't seem to interact with electromagnetism. It doesn't interact with light, which is electromagnetic radiation. It doesn't have charge. and there are a couple of interesting consequences of that. Like, if you um, if you touch the table, the reason you feel that is because the electrons in your hand are pushing against the electrons in the table, and you have that repulsive force, right? Dark matter doesn't do electromagnetism. It doesn't feel that repulsive force, so it can pass right through itself, right through everything else. It still has mass, but it doesn't collide. It's called collisionless for that reason. Um, so as far as we know, uh, dark matter doesn't doesn't do collision. It doesn't collide with things and it doesn't interact with light. So you can't see it. It's invisible. It doesn't absorb light. It doesn't reflect light. It doesn't produce light. But we know that there's a lot of it out there in the universe. And the reason we know that is because we see the way that galaxies revolve. Galaxies are sort of these uh, spinning uh, stars spinning around a center um, and gas and dust and all that stuff. And they seem to be spinning too fast for the stuff we see in them it's kind of like if you had a a merry-go-round and a bunch of kids on the merry-go-round and you spun it really fast the kids would all fly off eventually if they're not holding on tight enough and the stars in in galaxies that are rotating around uh seem like they should have flown off um ages ago but they're still holding on something is holding them in and we we call that something dark matter we don't know what it is um we see a lot of evidence for it in different ways it's been suggested that maybe it's not a real thing. Maybe we just misunderstood gravity. So, for instance, if you had if the the stuff that we can see, the luminous matter, just had more gravitational pull, maybe that would explain why nothing, why things aren't flying off into space. But that doesn't really work. Um, if you, it works to explain certain observations, but not others. Um, there are so many other pieces of evidence for dark matter. It really does seem like there's some stuff out there. Uh, that makes up most of the matter in the universe, about 80, 85% of the matter in the universe, and it's invisible. Most of our galaxy is this sort of invisible cloud, and we're, our galaxy is just kind of rotating around in, this, in the middle of it. And this seems to be the case for other galaxies, for clusters of galaxies. So there's something out there we can't see, we call it dark matter. It's not dark in the sense of, like, you know, something that's black is dark. I mean, this is dark because it's absorbing light. Dark matter just is invisible. So we should really call it invisible matter, not dark matter but the name suck.
0: So this isn't a balancing of the books. It's not it's a uh, it's an observable effect. You are yeah. inferring it exists from things that you can measure as opposed to saying we have this formula and if we stick this number in it works, and it balances out. This is a observable
1: well, yeah, I mean, it really does act like it's a separate kind of thing. And if all you saw was galaxies rotating too fast, then you might think maybe it is just balancing the books because we're trying to figure out how this, rota- this rotation works. But we also see evidence for it in the way that so if if you have mass in, in space, it can bend space and light travels around in a curved path around mass in space. It does that. That's called gravitational lensing. We see a lot more stuff bending space um, because dark matter is out there. We also see evidence for it in um, the way that galaxies formed in the early universe. So if you're trying to build a galaxy at early times, uh, it's a lot easier to do that if you have something kind of pulling everything in and bringing it together. And we don't know a way to build galaxies at early times without dark matter, without something there forming the sort of initial glue to bring everything in. So there are a lot of different ways that dark matter shows up, it's kind of like, like people's people often suggest dark matter is just you know this sort of thing that we've made up to to balance everything out um it's a lot like if you're if you're standing on a on a street corner and you and you see a tree sort of bending over a little bit and then you see a street sign kind of waving and then you see you know a plastic bag floating by and you suddenly feel a little bit colder on one side of your body than the other you're going to infer that there's a wind you know the wind is doing all of those different things and they're all different things but that's the most consistent explanation is that wind is moving past you can't see the wind you just have all these indirect pieces of evidence and dark matter is a lot like that we have a lot of different ways that we see evidence for it and dark matter as a sort of separate thing as some kind of new particle is the best explanation we have so far. Yeah I was going to
0: ask this so what's what's dark matter made of? Uh, <laughs> Come on you can tell, all, we're, we're friends you can tell us.
1: We're, we're, <laughs> we're working on that. Um, <laughs> we don't know yet. There are a lot of different theories. We think it's some kind of new fundamental particle. And it's it would be some kind of new fundamental particle that only interacts very, very weakly with other kinds of particles. Um, one thing that it might be is it might be a kind of particle that's its own antiparticle. An antiparticle is something where if you take the particle and the antiparticle and put them together, they annihilate. and They create radiation. This is how Star Trek um, engines work. They do part of, uh, They do um, um, antiparticle uh, annihilation. So it's possible that dark matter is its own antiparticle. So if you get two pieces of dark matter uh, on a direct enough path to collide, then they can create... Uh, some kind of other particles, and and you might be able to see those particles. So we look for evidence of that in the sky in places where there's a lot of dark matter, like the galactic center or the centers of other galaxies or clusters. We don't know yet. We've seen a lot of things that might be hints of that or might not be. It's kind of unclear, and there are other ideas as well. But
0: I, I think you've likened this to uh, to neutrinos. That yeah. there was, they were posited, but we didn't know they existed. But at some point, the uh, ability to measure them directly... Yeah about, is that going to be the same sort of thing? Will we eventually figure out a way, maybe, of course, not in the same mechanism, yeah. but a way to actually directly measure dark matter? Yeah,
1: hopefully, we're we're working. Yeah, so we're working on that too. There's. Um there's a whole field of direct detection for dark matter where we're we're building these underground labs, and you generally put it deep in the underground in a mine because otherwise there are too many cosmic rays coming in and messing up your your detector. Um, so you put it in a mine, and you just you just wait for a dark matter particle to come in and interact with something in your detector. And like I said. Dark matter doesn't like to interact with with light, it doesn't like to do collisions, but every once in a while through the weak nuclear force, which is kind of related to radioactivity and stuff, um, it will bump into something and impart a little bit of energy, give it a nudge or create some ionization or something. And you so you look for that. And so there are all these detectors out there that are deep in a mine just waiting for a dark matter particle to come in and bump into something. And the challenge there is that there are a lot of other kinds of particles that come in and bump into things. Things like just radioactivity in the in the walls of the mine can be a big problem. So it's a challenging uh, thing. And there are a few experiments that maybe have seen a sign or maybe not. And we're still trying to figure that out, too. So at the moment, it's still early days in capturing
0: dark matter, but we're working on it. So you're saying this is a great field of academic uh, exploration because there's no answer yet. Yes. (laughs) It's a great place to be. So when I was a kid, there were four fundamental forces of nature. Okay. Ostensibly. I'm a little younger than you. So at some point, there are three. I'm told the electroweak (laughs) force is a thing, and I'm supposed to adjust my entire internal knowledge of the universe around this. Does dark matter have any relationship to fundamental forces? Is that a totally... Does it change our knowledge of those things, or does it arise from, from what's known today?
1: We don't, we don't know that yet either.
0: Um, so, <laughs> Excellent. I
1: mean, as far as we know, like, uh, most of the theories of dark matter have it interacting via the weak force, which is something we already knew about. Um, so the forces are like gravity, strong force, weak force, electromagnetism. And electromagnetism and the weak force are connected uh, in some way. And if you get to high enough energies, you might be able to connect some of the others. As far as we know, dark matter probably interacts with the weak force. There could be another kind of force that interacts with, that dark matter particles interact with each other by, or that they interact with uh, other particles with. Um, There are experiments looking for that. But uh, you asked about dark energy, and I forgot to explain oh, yeah, dark energy yeah, right, because yeah. we, we were talking yeah. about dark matter, which is yeah. which you've
0: been able to measure, or you have you can infer. We, we rather, can infer sorry, it, yeah. And they may be able to measure. So where, where does dark? This is a marketing thing, isn't it? Dark <laughs> energy, dark matter.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a it's it's more of a of a total confusion thing. I mean, if we knew what it was, we could we could come up with a better name. But it's just something that we can't see. Um, so dark energy is is a different thing. Um, dark energy came about when we tried to figure out how quickly the universe was expanding so we know the universe is expanding it started in the big bang and it's been expanding ever since and the expectation for that is you have you have a big bang the universe starts expanding and then gravity kind of slows that expansion down and maybe it collapses again or maybe it doesn't but it's always kind of slowing down because gravity is always pulling in and that's all the gravity can do is pull in and so back in the 90s they decided to measure how quickly the the universe the expansion of the universe was slowing down they were trying to measure the deceleration parameter and something weird happened which is that they found that it wasn't decelerating um it, the expansion of the universe which should have been slowing down because gravity pulls everything in was speeding up and for the last 5 billion years or so the expansion of the universe has been speeding up and that's really weird okay let me tell you how weird this is let's say that you have you 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 have a ball right and you're throwing a ball up into the air there are a couple of possibilities you can you throw it up it, it kind of goes up for a little while stops and comes back down um because you didn't put enough oomph into it if you throw it really hard you can get it to escape you know and, and go off into space but it's always going to be kind of slowing down a little bit right like if i mean i mean obviously you're not just throwing a ball that way but maybe you're on the moon i don't know um but that's how gravity works you know you you it, the ball and the, and the earth are always attracted to each other. They're always going to be pulling together. Dark energy is like you take your ball, you throw it up in the air, it kind of slows down for a while and then it just shoots off into space on its own. And that's, that's how dark energy seems to be working. Whatever is doing that, we don't know what it is, but it's, it's accelerating things out away from everything else. It's making the universe expand faster, which makes it look like everything is moving away from us really, really quickly and we don't know what that is at all. It's possible that it's just a property of space-time. It's just something that goes into general relativity. Einstein came up with something like this, called it the cosmological constant, and that might be it. It, All our measurements so far are consistent with that, that it was just this term that Einstein put in the equations and later took out. We might need to just put that back, and that's dark energy. Or it could be something that changes with time. It could even be something that changes with time in such a way that it'll rip the universe apart eventually hopefully not but that's one of the possibilities so we're still trying to figure it out and at the moment we know a lot more about dark matter than we do about dark energy like we can we can tell where dark matter is clumping together in different parts of the universe we can we know something about how it interacts with itself and other matter dark energy we just all we know is that the universe is expanding and accelerating in its expansion that's kind of it Um, and we haven't seen differences in how it's accelerating in one part of the another universe or another so it seems to be something that's uniformly filling space and pushing out
0: well so it sounds to me like it's actually very exciting to be a scientist right now because totally I, yeah i keep thinking about you know what would it be like 120 years ago and think well we've pretty much solved everything and then <laughs> some decades ago we're getting close again it seems like all of these issues sound very open-ended that there aren't clear answers and there's decades or hundreds of years of, stu- of study ahead
1: yeah it's it's really interesting i mean when you like we have a concordance model of cosmology which is basically this idea that we we kind of know you know how much dark matter there is how much dark energy there is how things have evolved over time we're getting to the idea the place where we can measure those things with precision but what we've measured is that most of the universe is made of something that we can't see and and can barely measure (laughs) so i mean if you count up how much stuff in the universe is dark matter and dark energy Dark energy is about 70% of what the universe is made of. Whatever this stuff is that's pushing things out, 70% of the universe. Dark matter is about um, 20% or something. And so maybe 20, yeah, something along that, 25%. What we can actually see is 5% of the universe. That's that's all the atoms, all the radiation, all of the the ions and plasma, all of the stuff that actually interacts with light at all, which means you know, we can see it in a telescope, is like five percent of the universe and everything else we we just call it dark and we don't know what it is and we're we're making progress we're finding out more about it but at the moment it is a big mystery and there's a lot of room to figure things out still
0: that's great because it means so if you start your science career today you won't be done You get right. to graduate school sorry <laughs> science is over we've finished yeah. everything with astrophysics and physics and we're moving on to macrame <laughs> which i like so one of the questions that's come up uh Recently, I feel like because there was some coverage of this last year, Stephen Hawking likes to make bets. He likes to make mm-hmm. wagers. They're not usually for large amounts of money, unfortunately, for the winners of some of these. There's a bet he made with a colleague uh, about black holes. And I think it'd be fun to unpick this because I think it goes into a lot of different areas of your interest and of things that kind of hit the general subject. So, here, let's start with the big one. Uh, people believe, like the general public, has an idea of what a black hole is because Stephen Hawking told us right but black holes don't necessarily exist right they may not (laughs) we may not actually have anything that corresponds to our notion or his original notion of what a black hole is
1: Let, let me just say that what what we think about as black holes in terms of you know the sort of usual definition of a black hole for all practical purposes those are real we see them everywhere um astrophysical black holes are definitely real what what happens with How you get a black hole is you take a star you wait a really long time if it's a massive enough star it runs out of fuel and it collapses upon itself and it basically kind of collapses space-time around itself it becomes a sort of hole in space-time and you can't escape it if you get too close you're done you're in the black hole this is the usual notion of a black hole and we see stellar black holes all over the place there we see Places in the universe where there's a, a remnant of a, a star has collapsed, and there's something orbiting around it and falling in, and we can see that lighting up as it's falling in. So we know a black hole is there. There's a black hole in the center of our galaxy. It's about four million solar masses, so four million times as massive as the sun. It's in the center of our galaxy. It's not going to eat us or anything. It's fine. Um, there's just <laughs> there's stuff orbiting around it, and well, yeah, um, and you know, it's we're. Everything else is kind of in a stable orbit around this black hole. Every once in a while, it needs a gas cloud and everybody gets really excited. Um, but it's, you know, it's out there. So things that we call black holes as, you know, sort of in as the general public, those are definitely real. We see them all over the place. But there's a technical definition of a black hole, which is that it's, it's a region where there's a, an event horizon, which is a, a sort of sphere around the black hole, where if you go past that... Uh, you can never come out again, and anything that goes in can never escape. And like, if you put, if you sort of put information into the black hole, you can't get that information out again
0: oh, yeah. b- so by that. Define information, yeah. because okay. I think this is I, from a from a technology standpoint. Yeah. I know what information science is. Right. From this physical physics standpoint, what is information considered to be? Is it possible to explain it to people without math? <laughs>
1: I mean, when I'm saying information right now, what I'm really talking about is some knowledge of the stuff that fell into the black hole. So if you throw a toaster into the black hole, there's information that, that the thing that went in and the, was a toaster, the way you built up the mass of the black hole is you threw the toaster in. There's a question in, in physics about whether or not you can get, that, get in, that information out again, whether there's any kind of observation of the black hole you can do that'll let you know that the thing you threw in was a toaster. Um, in general it's re- in general you can't destroy information if you if you take the toaster and you throw it into a fire um, there's there are ways to examine like the light from the fire and the ashes from the fire you can in principle get that information back out it's never completely destroyed but there's a question in with black holes about whether or not stuff that goes into the black hole that information really is completely lost so we're, we're not sure about that yet and there's this is a big problem in in physics because quantum mechanics says that you can't lose information but the way black holes are structured some whatever goes in can't come out again and the, the the place where this becomes really interesting is that in the 1970s i think stephen hawking came up with this idea of hawking radiation which is a way that black holes can evaporate over time so if you if you have a black hole and you've built this black hole and you wait long enough um, it'll lose mass and it'll um, shrink and it'll sort of glow with with radiation and it'll uh, it'll disappear. It's a complicated process how that works. Uh, it has to do with virtual particles and quantum mechanics, uh, but the, the disappearance, the Hawking radiation, doesn't have any information in it. All it has is the temperature. There's, there's all these theorems about black holes where they don't have any extra information. In them. They can have a temperature, they can have a mass, they can have a charge. They don't have there's nothing else that you can see when you look at a black hole that tells you about what's inside. And the information that's inside is is just is stuck. And if the, if the black hole evaporates, um, all you ever get out of it is the temperature. So you know the mass, but you don't know that it was a toaster that you threw in. And this is a real big problem with quantum mechanics because quantum mechanics isn't supposed to allow that. You're not supposed to be able to lose information. So this is called the black hole information paradox. And there are a number of ways to try to resolve that. The recent thing that Hawking said was that maybe there is no real event horizon. Maybe information is never lost because that's not actually a sort of impenetrable barrier or like unpassable barrier that if something does go in, there's a way where if you study the black hole in a certain way, you could get that information out again. And so so it's a little complicated how that works, but he gave a talk at some conference and said, you know, black holes don't really exist. Uh, It's just a metal stable state of the gravitational field. And to a physicist, it's like, oh, OK, you're saying, you know, the, the event horizon isn't really a thing. And, you know, eventually information come out, can come out. That's fine. But it was pitched as there are no black holes, um, which is not real, not true, because we see them all the time. They're out there. Uh, we see really good evidence that black holes are, are actual objects in the sky.
0: You have another observable phenomenon. You know black holes exist because you can see them. You can see the effects of them yeah. happening. But there's there are uh, something beyond our ability to observe is what's happening at that barrier.
1: Yeah, yeah. So eventually we might be able to see closer to the event horizon and and see more evidence of what exactly is going on there. Um, there are telescopes being proposed that could see really really close to the event horizon of a black hole and and maybe tell us something more that's going on. One of the recent proposals is that the event horizon has is sort of a, a shell of super hot radiation. Uh, it's called a firewall. So maybe event horizons actually are glowing with radiation, and if you tried to go toward one, you would burn up before you ever got stretched out to spaghetti by falling into the black hole. And that's that's a big question, as as well as a way to resolve this information paradox. Um, I could go into that. It might take a little while. <laughs> we'll, we'll come back to okay. it in the questions,
0: right. <laughs> maybe. I think the um, reason that black holes got seized upon in the popular imagination when uh, Hawking was first talking about it, and others is uh, this idea of being a passageway to other universes—that there might be a baby universe right, right. in the middle, and so forth—has that um, romantic vision been entirely replaced <laughs> now?
1: So technically, I have to say that because there's an event horizon, because you can't get information back out, uh, we don't know what's what's down there. Um, maybe there are some. There's some kind of weird, uh, you know, passageway to another part of space time. Maybe it's a wormhole that really doesn't make sense astrophysically like you take a star you collapse the star you make a black hole you can't that doesn't make a portal to another universe so as far as we know in terms of realistic black holes that we've seen um it's it's just you just you don't want to go in there like (laughs) that's really it's really not a good idea um
0: i have no immediate plans yeah So you're saying Deep Space Nine was a lie.
1: Well, I mean, say. wormholes are wormholes are an interesting question. Um, theoretically, you, they could exist, but you would have to have a kind of matter that we've never seen evidence of. Something weirder than dark energy would have to be out there to hold the wormhole open, because otherwise it would collapse. Um, and we don't have any way of bending space-time in, a, in such a way to make a wormhole. So... If you had uh, this weird kind of matter and some super advanced civilization, I don't know, maybe it's possible. But as far as we know, it kind of probably isn't, unfortunately.
0: Well, I'm going to cross that off the list. <laughs> Bucket list, <laughs> no black holes. So, you know, a lot of the things we've been talking about so far, I think, skirt around an issue that you're very interested in, which is the limits of knowledge. What, yeah, What yeah. is ultimately knowable? What can we ever know given infinite resources and time? And what will we be able to find out in some, you know, finite time during our lifetimes or with yeah. the resources we have on Earth. What, you know, what are the um, the ranges of things you deal with when you think about the limits of what we can know?
1: Well, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. So one of the things that comes up a lot in uh, cosmology, which is my area of study, is the idea of, of horizons. So I talked about the event horizon, which is where if you go into the black hole, you can't escape that region anymore. Um, but there's a horizon sort of to our universe. Uh, the, and the horizon is where if we, we can look a certain distance, but beyond that, we really can't see any farther than that in principle. The reason for this is, uh, has to do with the travel time of light. So it takes light some time to travel. Um, it takes light about, it goes about a foot per nanosecond, if you want a rule of thumb. So if I'm looking at people at the back of the room, I'm looking at about 30 nanoseconds ago perhaps. So um, we're always looking to the past. When we look at the sun, we're looking at eight minutes ago. When we look at um, distant galaxies, we're looking at um, perhaps billions of years ago. You can think like, well, you can keep looking back and you can keep looking further back in time. But if the universe had a beginning, uh, the big bang, if if there was a moment where everything began, you can't look farther than that. Um, You try and look farther than that. There is nothing to see like that's the end. Um, And so we have a horizon, which is the distance out to which, Anything, you know, that light had time to travel from that place to us in the whole lifetime of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so we really can't see beyond that. Um, But because we're looking into the past when we're looking far away, um, we can see really close to the beginning of the universe. So if we look far enough away, we can see the first galaxies that formed. And we can actually see back into the time when the universe was just a fireball. Um, So um, when... uh, when I talk about the Big Bang, I'm, I usually am talking about the, the hot Big Bang theory, which is the idea that the universe was smaller and hotter and denser in the past. I mean, if you figure it's expanding now, it must have been smaller in the past. It's getting less dense now because it's expanding. It must have been more dense and hotter in the past. Um, so there was a time when the universe was really hot, really dense, um, as, as hot as the surfaces of the sun, every part of the universe. And that's called the hot Big Bang. Actually, if, you've, if you're if you familiar with the TV show, The Big Bang Theory, the theme song of that show has a really good explanation. Um, it says, the whole universe was in a hot, dense place. Then nearly 14 billion years ago, expansion started. Anyway, that's, that's the Big Bang Theory in a nutshell. So we can actually look back to that time. Uh, so we can see the radiation from the hot Big Bang. We can see the time when the universe was all one big fireball. And... Um, we can't. We really can't see beyond that, though, because well, because it was it was a fire, basically. I mean, it was plasma, and the light can't. We can't see through that, so we can't see beyond that. And that's uh, called the surface of last scatter. And we see the cosmic microwave background, um, which is where, if you look in every direction with a microwave telescope, you see this radiation, which is the afterglow of the Big Bang. That light. That's just we're looking to a part of the universe that's so far away that the light that was produced during that Big Bang phase is only just now reaching us. So every direction you look, you see the Big Bang, um, if you look far enough. But that means that there's a there's a distance out to which we can't see. There might be stuff beyond that. There might be stuff much farther away um, that is so far away that the light hasn't had time to reach us and we'll never be able to see uh, that part of the universe as it is now. In fact, um, there's another sort of horizon, which is that because the universe is now expanding um faster it's accelerating its expansion there are parts of the universe that will never um be accessible that the light is traveling to us from there but the expand the universe is expanding so fast the light can't keep up so like there's a part of the universe over here where the light beam is starting to move toward us but the expansion is happening and the light is it's like it's like you know walking too slow on a treadmill and being pulled off um, there's stuff beyond where we can, where we c- will ever be able to see, and in fact, because of that, in the very far distant future, we won't be able to see other galaxies at all. We'll be able to see Andromeda because it'll crash into us. Actually, um, in about four billion years, uh, Andromeda, our neighbor galaxy, is going to come crash into us, and it's going to be really exciting. We'll- <laughs> Later. We'll we'll probably be dead. The sun will have expanded a bit and probably like fried off our oceans. Spoilers, don't touch. <laughs> I know, I know. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Um, but it'll be a cool light show if we're on Mars or something by then. Um, but uh, so that'll happen, and you know the sort of galaxies really nearby to us will still be able to see because they'll kind of collide with us. But everything farther away, we'll, it'll it'll just we won't see it. It'll be pulled f- so far away that um, that we won't be able to see other galaxies and and. It's, it's fascinating because we're living in a, you know a, a, a nice time because we can see other galaxies. We can see the cosmic microwave background. We can see um, evidence of the beginning of the universe. If we were living billions and billions of years in the future, we might not have that, and we'd have a lot of trouble learning about how our universe began. But right now, we can see this this background radiation, and we can see these early galaxies, and we can learn a lot about the very early times and use that to learn about fundamental physics and you know how the laws of nature work so uh we should we should you know get on that
0: (laughs) (laughs) well if the natural consequence of what you're saying too is uh that at some point far far in the future the night sky will not be lit by stars of other galaxies only by our own
1: Yeah, I mean, most of what you see in the night sky right now is stuff in our galaxy. But even with telescopes, it
0: won't be invisible to us. It simply won't be visible. There won't be light coming from that far away.
1: Yeah, it'll be too far away. And, and, you know, beyond that, I mean, if that's the case, if dark energy keeps expanding the universe in an accelerated way, then, um, you know, the other galaxies will be pulled away, and then our galaxy will kind of run out of gas. We won't be able to form new stars, and then all the stars we have will kind of burn out, and it will get really dark and really cold and and dead and then there's and then there will be like not enough energy to maintain any kind of processes and and this is called the heat death of the universe and it's going to be really depressing um but it's it's a really long time from now so you know don't
0: worry you can make appointments next week it's okay <laughs> uh it will so that's the that's sort of the large extent the yeah. closer extent is is what can we measure on earth we keep we've been building bigger particle accelerators more yeah. sophisticated things is a point at which we run out of actual space or uh, resources, metal or something. <laughs> yeah. what, what do we? What limit do we hit? I, I mean, everyone's excited about the Higgs boson. As I said before, we were here. Po- boson. I've been saying yeah. boson or no. boson all year. Boson.
1: Boson. Yeah. Boson.
0: Yeah. And uh, the Higgs boson particle. So we we are finding out even with today's technology more things. How far do we go? Do we hit a wall where we say we can't find out about any more particles on Earth? The only way we can do it is through observation. And it's not going to be as satisfying? Or <laughs> is there, is the limit not yet been tapped?
1: Well, I mean, we're not, I wouldn't say we're as far as we can go yet. There's the the Large Hadron Collider is, um, you know, the biggest particle collider ever made. And it's going, it's, so later this year, it's going to go up to its highest energy. Um, and it's going to uh, hopefully discover some new things um to get much beyond that you know we need to keep building bigger accelerators but one of the things we can also do is the, the kind of stuff that as a cosmologist i'm really interested in which is looking for look look learning about physics from looking at the sky uh, so uh we can collide particles here on earth and um and study those collisions really really carefully to find out about how what particles are made of and how the basic Laws of nature work, but we can also look at cosmic ray collisions in the in the sky, and we can look at neutron stars and and really dense objects and really energetic objects in space, and learn something about the fundamental laws of nature from that. Um, so, you know, we might build bigger particle colliders to to look at these collisions really closely, but we can also build bigger telescopes and learn a lot from that by observing things that are happening um, that are already happening at really really high energies in other places. So there's, I think, really, that a lot of what we're learning about fundamental physics about, you know, basic laws of nature, uh, gravity and, and particle physics, that comes from looking at space. Now, uh, it comes from from observing um, things like the cosmic microwave background, things like high energy um, objects like uh, collapsed stars, and uh, cosmic rays and neutrinos, we have detectors that are finding these Super energetic neutrinos that are probably coming from other galaxies, and so we've got we've we've got a lot that we can do without just colliding particles together. But the thing that we learn from colliding particles together um, is we basically the the point of colliding particles together is to reach really high energies, and we think that the laws of nature are different at higher energies. I mean, we've observed this, um, and so we can uh, we can basically simulate the the um, conditions at very early times in the universe so you said before something about the about electromagnetism and the weak force Mm -hmm. being uh, the the electroweak force being the same kind of force and how the how that happens is if you get particles to high enough energy and you collide them you can see um the uh the electroweak force in action and it, we think that at very early times when the universe was very hot and dense um that that was the sort of law of nature that everything went by and so we can keep going to higher energies and try and see these um, changes to the laws of nature by doing higher energy collisions or by looking for higher energy collisions in other parts of the universe
0: that's um that's very exciting the report well it's funny because uh, the electroweak force um mm-hmm. i know about it by report right because i was too old To learn about it in school but it is a funny thing because they uh it felt like something changed in our knowledge and it percolated out um kind of unevenly Mm. so when my kids talk about physics what they're learning it's more complicated in some ways but is the grand unified theory is there still a desire to try to reach that or is that impossible i mean is that impossible to reach through experimentation
1: so grand unified theory um is actually a technical term which in general, means unifying the forces of nature other than gravity. So a grand unified theory unifies electromagnetism, the weak force, and the strong force. And there are different kinds of grand unified theories out there that, you know, we're trying to test. What we really want is a theory of everything. Mm-hmm. And that's that's also a technical term. And what that means is you're unifying not just the, the those forces, but also gravity. And that's what string theory tries to do. That's what things like loop quantum gravity are trying to do. So when I say unify the forces, I mean, find a way that these different forces are the same strength and and act as one kind of, interaction. It's a little bit hard to explain what that means exactly, but like with electromagnetism, that's electricity and magnetism, and it's a unified thing. And we understand how electricity and magnetism like work together and have interact with each other. And we've now been able to do that with the weak force as well. So we can see certain regimes where things are governed not by electricity and magnetism and the weak force separately, but by the electroweak force together. And so we can hypothesize how to do that with the strong force. ways to do that supersymmetry is a is a theory that tries to do that but it's hard with gravity Um, we don't know a way to bring gravity and quantum mechanics uh, the theory of the particles of nature together there are ways in which gravity and quantum mechanics work really really differently and kind of conflict and we don't yet know how to how to tie that in Um, so we're trying to find a theory of gravity that works on the sort of quantum level where you can say you know here's Here's the the particle of gravity, here's the graviton, here's how it interacts quantum mechanically with other things, and that's responsible for gravity. At the moment, gravity works best in a general relativity framework, which is this idea that it's sort of curving of space-time, and we don't know how to make that a particle theory yet. But we're working on that. That's that's what string theory is all about.
0: But it's really hard to test. Well, speaking of curving space-time with gravity, (laughs) exoplanets, wasn't that a great transition? (laughs) So we have a list of things we wanted to talk about. So exoplanets, yeah. it, partly because I realize this isn't your specialty, but you no. have a profound interest oh, in yeah, it, totally. and it falls directly into your area of cosmology. Uh, the uh, you were just at the AAS conference. The mm-hmm. your uh, it's not industry. I don't know. You call it your academic fields uh, major conference. It's the in America. American
1: Astronomical Society. Right, not yeah. an
0: industry person. They don't make planets. They no. study physics. It seemed like there was some exciting news that came out of that for people interested in whether there is life elsewhere in the universe or the potential uh, somewhere out there. We need to find planets that are, Suitable by our standards, that might potentially, you know, on and on and on. Uh, what kind of news was coming out from that? Because it feels sometimes like every few weeks they find another planet. It's great, right? They what's, what's they happening?
1: totally find new planets all the time. There, um, you can I have an app on my phone yeah. called yeah. the Exoplanet app, and you can get this app. It's an iPhone app, and it, it you get a notification when they find new planets. It's awesome. Um, and they give you a little map of like where the planets are in the galaxy. It's great. Well, so at the at the meeting they announced a few new, um potentially habitable planet so when i say potentially habitable i don't really mean we can go and live there what i mean is like keep there's
0: things off my list i'm like all right right, <laughs> do that
1: either. yeah well so what we're trying to do with planet hunting there's there's a telescope out there, uh, the Kepler telescope, which is finding tons of planets. is doing awesome stuff. The way it works is that it it looks at stars, it stares at stars and it waits for a planet to pass in front of the star and block out just a little bit of that light. And it looks for that change in brightness and it finds planets that way. It's called the transit method. So what we want to do is find planets that are rocky, so they have a surface, not like Jupiter, for instance, it's a gas giant, you can't stand on the, on Jupiter. You want rocky planets that are within the habitable zone of the star. And what the habitable zone means is it's the region... Of the distance from the star where liquid water could exist on the surface of a planet. So we're in the habitable zone of our sun. We have liquid water. We have good temperature range. And we think that, you know, maybe liquid water is necessary for life. So we want to find planets that could have liquid water. So we want to be, find planets that are orbiting around in around their star at a, at a nice distance. Yeah, it's called the Goldilocks zone sometimes. And we'd love to find a planet that's Close to the mass of Earth, around a sun that looks like the, the around a star that looks like our sun, and we keep getting sort of inter- incrementally closer to that. So there, at the meeting, there were a few more planets announced. I think there are now about eight that are kind of roughly Earth size around stars that are you know in roughly in the habitable zone of the star. Um, but habitable zone is kind of misleading because all that means is that like if you had a big rock there and had some kind of atmosphere maybe then you could possibly have liquid water but we don't know anything about the atmospheres of most of these things because all we see is that light getting blocked out by the by the planet going around the star we can't in most cases we can't study the atmosphere directly or it's very very difficult. Um, so we're still trying to see that there have been some observations of atmospheres of planets where you can block out the, the light from the star and, and see the, the planet orbiting around. And that's really, really hard to do because stars are so much brighter than their planets. Um, and especially if the, the planet is close in, it's very, very hard to distinguish that. So there are a bunch of reasons why it's hard to see planets that are similar to Earth around other stars. It's just based on what we can see easily with telescopes, it they wouldn't stand out very well. And so we're, we keep trying to, to do that. And there are observational projects to try to see planets that are more like earth around stars that are more like the sun but uh we we know that there are tons of planets out there we know that there that roughly uh there's uh, just about every star in the galaxy probably has at least one planet on average possibly way more than that so we know that there are billions of planets out there what how many of them are earth-like is really really hard to say uh just because it's hard to see these things like it's if you're looking for something to block out the light of a star it's a lot more you're a lot more likely to see a large planet orbiting close that's called a hot jupiter because it's big and, and close and so it's hot you can't live on a hot jupiter it's it would not be a good idea so we don't know how many planets like our our own planet are out there because we wouldn't be able to see it very well with these methods uh, not very far away anyway so we're still trying to figure that out but it's a it's a fascinating question because first of all you need a planet that is like capable of supporting life you need some kind of liquid water possibly or some other liquid where life can form um you and you might need all sorts of coincidences like you might it might be that it's been proposed that the reason that life was able to form on the earth is because we have the moon and you can get tide pools and so you can get these regions where you get a little bit of water and it's like it's there at some times of day and not at other times of day and that makes it easier to make life possibly Um, it might be that plate tectonics are really important for life and you know you need undersea vents or something like that We don't know this is a really fascinating question that we don't have the answer to yet but what we can do right now is observationally we can keep trying to find more and more planets and keep trying to find more of these planets that are similar to our planet and try and figure out how many are out there and try and study something about them to see if they have the conditions that we think are necessary for life but it doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to have life and it doesn't mean that those are the only conditions possible i mean the best candidates for life in our solar system are moons of gas giants mm-hmm. so uh, places like Enceladus or Titan where they might have an undersurface ocean and that's warmed by the fact that it's going around a large planet and gets kind of squeezed by the tides of that planet and and that heats it up a little bit I mean, It might be something like that. We might find life on an exomoon instead of an exoplanet. We don't know yet.
0: Well, And this uh, this gets us back to the measurement problem, right, is that direct observation from a distance is difficult. Sending out probes is extremely problematic. I just looked this up live at the moment. (laughs) Voyager 1 is 130.84 astronomical units away from, you know, so it's 130, almost 131 times... Uh, the distance from the earth to the sun away from the sun, and that's after almost 30 years at this point. Yeah. Uh, it's only 36 light minutes, at this second, 36 light minutes away. That's not very far in this uh, the scope of human history, so the idea yeah. of sending a probe, being able to measure something directly in some way, not even the light round trip from whatever the nearest target might be, that's something that's not going to happen in the span of human lifetime Lifetime is very likely.
1: Yeah, I mean, to get to another star, I mean, our nearest star other than the sun is about four light years away and we can't travel anywhere near the speed of light. So that would be, you know, a a trip that would take centuries. and, And we don't, you know, we'd have to be fantastically lucky for that star to have, you know, a planet with life. So we're probably not going to be able to go to these places anytime soon, but it would be awesome to just know if there's other life out there. And if we do find something, maybe we can send signals. And if they happen to be the sort of life forms that build radio telescopes, maybe they'll talk back to us. But, you know, at the moment, we don't we don't really know.
0: This is why people want to terraform Mars because then we have life in our own backyard.
1: <laughs> but uh, also, Mars—I mean, living on Mars would be awesome, be right? right? Well, I mean, just, just
0: pro- you know, Kim Stanley Robinson's trilogy is probably here in the store, I would guess. The uh, yeah. oh no, I mean, maybe not. Know. Red Red Mars. You should Green totally Mars, read Blue it though. Mars. Yeah, it's, it's Red wonderful.
1: Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. It's about like terraforming Mars. You should also read The Martian, which is an amazing oh, I've book heard that. Um, about people going to Mars. Um, do you have that in store. Okay. Good yeah. That's a really good it. book. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I haven't, uh, I haven't actually read that one.
0: The, you know, we're talking about science and one of the aspects of science, of course, it's very important is uh, scientists. Scientists are a very <laughs> important part of what makes science happen. Apparently computers are not the answer. You're not being replaced by robots yet. Unlike many other professions. And uh, I would love to know what drove you into, this field, did you come up from it from the math side, the physics side. Your mother tweeted, of course, <laughs> and said she wants to know who your biggest inspiration is. <laughs> this is the joy of Twitter. Your mother, yeah, up after
1: yeah. I mean, she was a big inspiration, actually. Uh, so I got into I got into this field through physics. Um, I've spent a lot of time in astronomy departments. I've spent time in physics departments. A lot of times, people come into it through looking at the night sky and and watching the stars and wondering about what's out there. I grew up in Los Angeles. Watching the stars was a little bit difficult (laughs) um, unless it was the Hollywood kind. I did go to the planetarium sometimes. I went to the observatory. I joined the LA Astronomical Society. But the thing that really fascinated me fascinated me was trying to understand how things worked. So I was the sort of kid who would take apart the remote control and try and put it back together. Um, I would make little toy cars out of Legos and solar panels. And, you know, uh, I did stuff like that. I was always just trying to understand how things worked. And so when I... So eventually, um, when I was, I don't know, probably like... Eight or something, I heard about this guy Stephen Hawking and how he was studying black holes and warped space time and the Big Bang. And I thought that sounds awesome. And so I got a copy of a brief history of time. And I went to a couple of lectures by people like Stephen Hawking and, and uh, Paul Davies and learned about, you know, time and space and the Big Bang and black holes. And I thought that was fantastic. And I found out that Stephen Hawking was a cosmologist. And I said, I want to be a cosmologist. Um, and so I, I got into it through just really wanting to know how everything works and and I think that studying the, the sky is really one of the best ways to figure that out because you can you, it's a sort of laboratory for this these fundamental questions and you can see these extreme environments like places around black holes and neutron stars and you can study stuff like dark matter which is you know something entirely new that we didn't know about before and really get to these big questions I mean I you know as a cosmologist, the questions I'm interested in are things like how did the universe begin, um, how did galaxies form, what is the universe made of. Uh, those are pretty fundamental questions, and I, I get to work on that, and that's fantastic. So what
0: is your work day or work experience like? Because I'm trying to picture yeah. this. You know, I know my exciting job as a writer is to sit and stare at a keyboard and occasionally <laughs> talk to people on the phone, and sometimes do this, which is even better. But do you do? You, are you doing? Um, Do you look at imagery and infer things from imagery as well as calculation are you i mean what what do you actually get your fingers into (laughs) are you sitting there thinking are you staring at the wall for entire days
1: uh i don't stare at the wall for entire days unless things are going terribly wrong so the stuff i do uh, you might call it phenomenology i study i'm sort of between the observation part and the theory part um so i don't generally come up with brand new theories and i don't do observations i I've been to a telescope once. It was great, but that's not my daily thing. And I don't deal with data generally. But what I do is I I talk to the the experimental people and the the observational people, and I talk to the theorists, and I try and figure out like there's this interesting theory about, for instance, um, cosmic strings, which are a kind of uh, possible uh, possible consequence of early universe physics, where you have this sort of string of high energy stretching through the universe, and you have a whole network of them, and weird things can happen. So maybe there's theories of the early universe where you get cosmic strings, and then I think, oh, well, what maybe you could see something with radio telescopes. And then I talk to the radio telescope people and they about gravitational lensing and what you might see gravitational lensing from cosmic strings. And I write a paper about, you know, how, how you could look for cosmic strings with Gravitational lensing with radio telescopes. So the stuff I do is usually kind of somewhere in the middle, um, trying to trying to see what we can learn about fundamental physics by thinking by doing astronomical observations. And I I don't I don't come up with the theories and I do not do the observations, but I'm trying to translate between the two and, and proposing new observations and new methods to figure that out. And. What that usually translates to in terms of my daily life is I write some code. I do, um, I solve equations. I write down equations by hand, then I put them in the computer and try and get the computer to solve them. I make lots of plots. I talk to people a lot, uh, so I spend a lot of time visiting different places and talking to people about new ideas and trying to come up with uh, creative ways to uh, explore some of these questions. I supervise a student. I have a PhD student who's working under... My prim- primary supervision, and I give her stuff to do, and we talk about ideas on calculations that she and I can do together. I give talks at places and get ideas from that, and I go to other people's talks and get ideas from that. But the actual sort of doing the science part is mostly pen and paper equations and then do write, writing code.
0: There's so much more interactivity than I realized, and that's There's a, a, a lot, very interesting yeah. area. So you've carved out. A space in the field, or you found a field that allows you to have this kind of collaboration and conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of um, theoretical physics and and astrophysics is a lot more collaborative, I think, than people realize. I mean, when I was a little kid and I thought I would be a cosmologist, I thought, okay, I'm going to have a little office. I'm going to have a big blackboard. I'm going to write equations and not talk to anyone all day. I thought that would be what my life was like. Um, but people don't really work like that. Um, it's even in in like the upper echelons of theoretical physics people are talking to each other all the time um because it's these problems are are really big and complicated and it's you get a lot more done if you talk to each other you know i'm i might be an expert on one aspect of the problem but some other colleague of mine is an expert on another and if we actually talk to each other we can find a way to solve this problem more efficiently and so there's a heck of a lot of interaction i mean people have this idea of theoretical physicists as these sort of lone geniuses up in a tower somewhere kind of coming up with the universe off the top of their head D- that doesn't really happen i mean i think you know there have been a very small number of examples where anybody's gotten anything useful done that way mm-hmm. it's almost entirely through conferences and travel and conversations and skype calls and and you know hashing things out on a blackboard with each other
0: that sounds very entertaining though it sounds i know i really i didn't exactly picture you in a lab all the time but it's nice to know that there's a way to pursue science that that involves that much conversation and and um, and collaboration. So I want to hit on one thing here. We're going to uh, talk for just a few more minutes and take a, about a fifteen-minute break. Everyone can stretch their legs, get some beverages and food, and we'll we'll reconvene for questions and answers. You can find the books we've talked about out there. Maybe buy some during this period. But uh, the so we've ta- you know we're talking about the people you work with and you travel a lot. You see people around the world. You know, you're in Australia, you've you've been on on this tour, you've been in Cambridge, you've been in Princeton. Inclusivity is a huge issue in the sciences right now. It's what we talk about all the time. It's a big issue in kind of the field that I interact with in technology, where for some reason, not totally understood the number of degrees awarded to women in in computer science and engineering went up and up and up until 1984 and then it plummeted. There's a lot of ideas why, but it plummeted even as more degrees are awarded the percentage has declined that are awarded to women. Uh, In the sciences there's a lot of barriers and and issues there. I'm gonna say this word once and then we're not gonna talk about (laughs) it again. The word is shirt storm which seemed to... there's two R's in that, thank you very much, shirt storm, which coalesced a lot of... um, so it, it wasn't all about the shirt and you can Google this later. We won't talk about it too much, but it did coalesce a lot of people's um, concerns and issues of places for women and also people of color, people who aren't the traditional white guy with a pocket protector in engineering, mm-hmm. uh, involved in physics and hard sciences and so forth. Uh, how do you, how do you approach that? What do you? What is your interest in you know fostering uh, inclusivity and, and diversity, and, and how do you bring that to the work that you do?
1: Well, I mean, I think that. I think that it's really important that we change the image of what it what it is to be a scientist. I think that the image of an old white guy, you know, sitting by himself in a tower with a chalkboard, and that's what it is to be a scientist, I think that really needs to change, both from the point of view of what scientists do and the point of view from who scientists are, you know, we're not all horrible, awkward people who can't talk to other humans. And that's a really outdated idea. But it's an idea that keeps a lot of people from thinking that science is for them. And there are a lot of um, especially young girls who think that science isn't something that they can do or isn't something that they're welcome to do. And I think that's really tragic, because then you lose these really talented people who might have a passion and might want to pursue that passion and, and make Fantastic discoveries, just because of ridiculous stereotypes. I mean, there there was a study recently at Melbourne University where I'm based, where they found that a lot of the that the number of girls in physics had been going down, and a lot of the girls had said that they they thought that physics was too hard for girls, and and because they sort of got, got had these uh, messages like told to them, and they absorbed that. And people do absorb that. It's impossible to go around not hearing that stuff not seeing that stuff and it starts so young i mean you know little children are uh, are given toys that are considered you know gender appropriate where a little, a little boy might get like a little play tool set and a little girl might get a little play bake set and all this color-coded things and there's they sell uh t-shirts for little girls that say things like i'm too pretty to do math and it's horrible messages and they and they they start so young and they really sink in and the way that that people talk to little girls versus little boys and then over time you know Um, In school, it's been found that girls do really well in math until a certain point, and then social pressures kick in that say that girls shouldn't be doing math, or girls aren't supposed to be good at math, and then the the, the rate goes down. And when you tell girls um, that they're not as good at math, uh, they've done experiments where they've They've just had two sets of girls doing math problems, and they tell one gr- one set that girls aren't as good at math, and they don't tell that to the other set, and the one that they've told that, the scores go down. So there's so many societal pressures that are pushing women out of science, that are pushing people of color out of science as well, and all of these things come together, and so I think it's really important to to fight that and to try to present a more balanced viewpoint and and just the truth which is that if you're passionate about this and you're and you're driven and you work hard and you know you have some ability you're, you're going to do well you're going to you know you can make a, a contribution i won't say that every human being in the world can be a brilliant scientist but i think that for the most part it's it's mostly about dedication and passion and working hard and you know there's there's no reason that any particular category of person could be any worse at at doing science than any other. And so part of what I try to do when I do outreach stuff in science communication is to just say like, to be somebody who's not an old white guy with a beard sitting in a tower talking to myself about physics, you know, like to be like, we, can, you know, you can, you can be a scientist if you really want to. You can be good at math if you work at it. I mean, even, you know, even just the question of like a lot of people think that either you're a math person or you're not a math person and there's no changing that. That's not true. Um, and that's something that really holds people back as well is that people are told like oh you have to you have to be a natural and if you're not a natural you should give up that's ridiculous You, you get good at math by doing math people have anxiety around these things but it's really more about who you are and how you're driven and not about like some external characteristic and so I think it's it's really important to have role models in science who are not old white guys and I think that it's important to just try and drive home that message that all these stereotypes are just ridiculous and and it's not how people work and we can everybody can have access to being a
0: scientific person It's an extremely articulate answer and I'm not going to try to elaborate on it because it was so good and I think it's probably time we can talk about this more in the questions let's take uh, like 15 minutes so everyone can stretch their legs we can air the room out a little bit do questions from the online world and from this audience so I have questions From online people but I think you get precedence because you're all here in person (laughs) and what I'm gonna do is you ask the question and then I will repeat and summarize it briefly that's a fan so is there an actual location where the Big Bang occurred that we could look at
1: no in the sense that it happened everywhere every part of the universe is the center of the universe and or there is no center of the universe but the Big Bang every part of the universe is expanding and that expansion is, as far as we can tell, uniform. It's expanding the same in every direction. And so if you dial back the expansion, everything is kind of moving closer together. But there's no like one point that it's all moving toward. Every part is moving toward every other part. And so it's more like, it's, it, you can imagine it like um, you're like you're blowing up a balloon. No part of that balloon is the center it's all every part of that balloon is moving a little bit farther away from every other part of that balloon but no part of it is the center it's all it's on a sort of sphere and like if you dial it back then every part was the center but there is no part that is the center so as far as we know the universe i mean it might as well it might be infinite and no have no center if you dial back the expansion and go to like the sort of beginning what we really mean by that is like everything in the universe was a lot closer together to a lot closer to everything else. Everything was a lot denser. So it's not really that it was all in one point necessarily. It's really that it was all closer to everything else. Yeah. So it's, it's more a sort of getting less dense over time rather than exactly being bigger. I mean, it could be infinite and getting more infinite.
0: I I recommend reading an Italo Calvino story in his collection *Cosmic Comics*, it's fiction, but it's about when everyone, the small group of people, all together before the Big Bang, and then I think uh, someone offered, um, made meatballs or something. Uh, there's some, there's a, good, there's a good bit. But Italo Calvino, great, he's a okay. writes about cosmology in a fictional way. I'll repeat your question. Katie can hear you just fine, and I'll be repeating it for the rest of the audience. Oh, that's okay. great. So, how confident are scientists that dark matter is one thing, or are there a whole bunch of different kinds of things that don't interact with light?
1: So we, we have no idea. Um, there, there could be an entire dark sector. There could e- even be, one of the theories is an idea that every particle that we know about in our standard model, there's a sort of analog in the dark sector, and they have their own kind of interactions with each other, and they don't interact so much with, with our particles. There are theories like that. There's a possibility that you could have some of the dark matter is one kind of dark thing, and, another, and a totally different species could be the other half. We don't know. Um, we usually assume that it's all one thing for simplicity. Um, so generally, we assume like maybe it's all weakly interacting massive particles, so-called wimps, and the, those are and they're just some kind of fundamental particle that doesn't interact with light, but it interacts via the weak force, and it might annihilate when they get close together we usually assume it's you know maybe it's all it's all that or maybe it's all some kind of uh, new species of neutrino or maybe it's all axions which are a different kind of fundamental particle that might or might not exist and if you ever go to the university of washington they've got this massive axion detector there they're trying to look for that maybe it's all axions maybe it's some little piece of everything you know we don't we don't really know we haven't had a solid detection of any of them and even if we did we wouldn't know for sure depending on the detection if they were all of the dark matter or just some component i mean in a sense centrino's are dark matter um because they interact weakly and they have mass but they're not the dark matter because there's not enough of them and they move too fast so we know that they're not the dark matter, the stuff that's, you know, most of the mass of the universe, but they're kind of sort of in the dark sector. So it's entirely possible the dark sector is just as rich as uh, the luminous matter, but but we don't know.
0: A question from our Twitter stream is, are there too many students trying to become astronomers? Are there enough jobs for people (laughs) coming up? I asked someone who's in a postdoctoral program this question, yes. So uh, it's, It's like asking, how's your book going to an author? Sorry.
1: Yeah, so... I'm sort of experimentally testing this right now. I am um, I am on the job market. Um, so it turns out that in, in astrophysics, like in a number of other fields, there are far more PhDs produced than there are faculty jobs. So if you go into some area of academic science, based on purely numbers, your chance of becoming a professor someday in that field is like one in 10. That's the case for most areas of, of academic science. That's uh, that's not to say that you can't make a big impact as a researcher, as a graduate student, as a postdoctoral fellow. Um, a lot of times what people do is that you do you do a PhD and then you do postdoctoral fellowships where you go around, um, you spend a few years in one institution, a few years in another institution, you do research, you contribute to the field. You have a much better chance of being able to do that a, f- a couple of times. Um, actually becoming a professor is is rare but there are a lot of ways that you can use the things that you learn as as a researcher as a graduate student to get to contribute to other areas of science or other areas of life it turns out that an astronomy phd is is a fantastically versatile thing the 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 un- unemployment rate among astronomy phd's is virtually nil in america i wouldn't say there are too many students i might say there there are too many postdocs um, <laughs> i think it's i think it's a lot easier to go from a phd in a in a uh, aca- in academic science to some other field than to go from you know a couple of postdocs later just cuz you're older and less and more settled and so on but one of the things that is important to note is that Getting a technical degree in a research field is is really useful for a lot of different things. I mean, I have colleagues who've gone into data science. I have colleagues who've gone into um, finance, uh, make huge amounts of money in, in on Wall Street based on knowing how to do differential equations. I've had colleagues who've gone into meteorology or some other area of science or consulting, or uh, I have a friend who works in patent law because he knows how to he knows how to uh, understand computers and new technologies so I, I don't think there are too many students I think that um, there are problems with the academic career structure but if you if you want to study this stuff and and get a degree and learn these these areas there's no reason not to do that if you're willing to put in the time and you and you have a plan for what to do if you if you aren't one of those lucky one in ten to get the professorship or, or even if you just don't want to do that I mean it's not for everybody.
0: Person, the uh, a paranoid android in our our chat room here asked uh, if the universe is uh, if it's possible what we're observing happens to be a a relatively uniform expanding portion of the overall universe and that in fact we're seeing sort of a glitch like where we are is does not actually represent what the entire universe looks like.
1: Mm. Right, so this gets into ideas about like the multiverse, actually. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we can see we can see or get some kind of evidence of the stuff that's going on in our horizon, in the region of space where um, light has had time to get from the big, from from somewhere else to us in the time since the Big Bang. We can observe that ba- that's called the observable universe. Beyond that, we really don't know, we don't have any way of knowing what's going on beyond that distance, and it could be that the laws of nature are different if you get really far away, it could be that the constants of nature have different values. We don't know. As far as we know, within our universe, we're not in a special place. Uh, Within our observable universe, you look in different parts of the universe, you see uh, very similar structures. You see the way that galaxies are laid out, the way that physics seems to behave, appears to be the same everywhere in our observable universe. This is called the Copernican principle. This is the idea that we're not in a special place, we're not special in the universe, we're not in a special time. We're in reasonably typical part of the universe and it's helpful if we want to learn about fundamental physics by studying astronomy because you know, we it would be really inconvenient if we looked out at some other galaxy and we thought we'd learn something, but it was totally different over there than it is over here. But we can't say that about parts of the universe that are beyond our observable volume. One of the ideas that people talk about is the idea that different parts of the universe outside of our observable volume have different laws of nature, and those aren't governed by anything fundamental. It's just chance that the constants of nature are what they are here. They're something else uh, elsewhere. And the reason that we there's there's no particularly good reason that we see the laws of nature as as they are. But if they were vastly different, we might not be able to form stars and galaxies in life. And so, you know, that might sort of explain why we see what we do. This is called the anthropic principle. I'm not a huge fan of that reasoning because I, I like the idea that that the laws of nature have. Uh, some really fundamental uh, basis, and that we'll figure out why the constants of nature are what they are based on a better understanding of fundamental theory. But it's entirely possible that they're just environmental. That's a big debate in physics right now: is is you know whether or not it's it's all this sort of multiverse thing going on, or there are different sort of pockets of the universe that have different laws, or if it's it, you know if if everything outside of our observable universe is probably pretty similar to what's here. Where am
0: I going? <laughs> I was taken aback by the question. So, would you space? Would you go? Is the question
1: in a heartbeat? I, I so I actually applied for NASA's astronaut program um, a, a couple of years ago, and I made the first cut. So, so, so if you if you apply and you make the first cut, they put you on the list called the highly qualified list. So, I am highly qualified to be yeah. to be an astronaut and go to space. I, I didn't. I can try again. Yeah, yeah. So when they do another call, I will try again. I would totally go to space. I would, I would take any chance to go to space. I would, I would even, I would go to Mars and stay there. Like if, if they had one of these one-way trips that was run by, you know, NASA for instance, um, uh, I would, I would take that. I would take that trip as long as I could stay for like a reasonable amount of time before dying, you know, I mean, I wouldn't want to go for like a couple of weeks, but like, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I figure like, Okay, so the number of things—the number of things you can accomplish in your life—is—is is small, right? But like going to Mars, that would be a huge one, and like that would—that would trump a lot of things that I might be able to accomplish on Earth. So if they said you can have a one-way ticket, you can spend the rest of your life on Mars, I would totally do that.
0: There's a uh, Scott Maxwell who is, uh, for a long time, was one of the uh, one of the people who's driven the most on Mars. He's an Opportunity and Spirit driver, and then a driver of the Curiosity. Uh, one of the team there. Uh, and now he's at Google, of course, as everyone winds up. But he uh, he drove for, I think, eight or nine years across the th- those three uh, rovers. He, uh, I was interviewing him a few years ago, and he brought it up. He said, yeah, I go to Mars one way, and I'm like, you're engaged. How did you now married? How does your fiancé feel about it? It's like, she let me go. Also a scientist. Like, well, you know, if you got called up, I mean, I, have yeah. to let it, I think there's no... Yeah, you know, there's, I go. mean, yeah. NASA PR guy said, we don't really want to talk about one-way trips to Mars, <laughs> though. It's not very popular. Actually, if you find there's a wonderful piece by a fellow named Roman Mars, uh, who does 99% Invisible Podcast, before he did that podcast, and I think it's been re-aired on that series mm-hmm. about a one-way trip to Mars, and he talked to all the people. It's a very uncomfortable topic, mm-hmm. uh, because we always bring people back, and so the yeah. idea that people go off, it uh, makes people nervous.
1: I mean, there, there are companies now trying to set it up. Um, there's this one, Mars One, that's that's already done a, a one one sort of sweep of selection process to find uh, people to go to Mars, but I think that I don't think that they're gonna have the technology and time um, for when they say their launch window is. Um, I, I maybe I I shouldn't say that, but um, <laughs> I mean it's hard. It's it's getting there is hard because you need to lift a lot of stuff and you need to go really far. Um, landing is really hard, uh, as we saw with the Curiosity rover and the and the seven minutes of terror thing and all that. But living there is really, really hard. So the the problem with living there is you've got this you've got a huge amount of radiation. You don't have enough uh, like atmosphere to to block a lot of that radiation. the 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 surface is is completely irradiated. So you can't you couldn't grow things on the surface without a whole lot of shielding. You'd basically have to be underground all the time. It'd be really hard to sustain life on Mars. So that's I think the the much harder part than just getting there. I don't know I don't know a whole lot about Mars One, but I I'd be surprised if they they launched on schedule and, and, you know, made it and all, everything worked out.
0: Another uh, online question here is, um, and I, I want to ask, I want to do a two-part here, is do you have a favorite exoplanet, which I know is a difficult question. The other is your opinion about Pluto, which is a divisive yeah. issue.
1: Oh, gosh. You oh, can uh,
0: pass on that one, but start with the, I, do you have other okay. exo, exoplanet candidates that you uh, are fond of?
1: I don't remember all of the sort of the numbers. There's an exoplanet, I think there's... I think it's still it's still considered an exoplanet. There's a planet around um, Alpha Centauri B. Ooh. So there's there's Alpha Centauri is a double system actually. There's there's uh, like another one, but Alpha Centauri B, one of the stars has a has a planet around it. Um, and it's sort of roughly Earth masses, I think. Um, but it's really really close, so it's yeah. totally boiled. You know, it's like magma. That's that's cool because it's really close. Uh, there's another one they've they recently found. Um an exoplanet around a star that is moving really quickly through our galaxy and they then because it's moving so quickly it appears that the star is actually uh something that came in from another galaxy like so our galaxy swallows other galaxies all the time it rips apart little galaxies and they make these long streams of stars orbiting around our galaxy so there's this um I think it was called Kaplingen or something. Uh, there's a, a star that's, that looks like it came from another galaxy and it appears to have a planet around it. And that's really cool. Cause it's like, it's a planet that came from another another galaxy. It just tagged along with a star and now it's, now it's here. Uh, so that's a, that's a cool one. Um, but I'm, I'm not. I don't know. I don't know a lot of exoplanets very well, so I'm not sure. All um, right. So,
0: pl- so, Pluto. I'm
1: gonna. I'm gonna get hate mail I if I answer know. this question. <laughs> um, I
0: read both books. You know, I haven't studied it.
1: Before. Okay. So, so Pluto is a a small world uh, near the edge of our solar system, <laughs> and and there's this big controversy about whether we can call it a planet or not. There was a decision a few years ago uh, saying that it's not it doesn't count as a planet it's a dwarf planet because uh, there are a number of a number of different criteria for being a planet one is that you have to have uh cleared your orbit s- like space so so when when something like jupiter orbits the sun there's there's not a lot of stuff orbiting really nearby jupiter that doesn't get swallowed up by jupiter there are asteroids in sort of resonances so that they kind of move around as Jupiter moves around at a set distance, but there's not a lot like in the orbit of Jupiter because it's cleared out because it's big and massive and and does that. Pluto hasn't done that. There are other things it's, it's sort of out there in the Kuiper belt, which is this region of of space where there's a lot of little icy worlds. And Pluto seems to be kind of one of those, Uh, but it's, you know, it's a relatively big Kuiper belt object. So it's classified as a dwarf planet and that's the official designation of Pluto. So there's, (laughs) It's it's it seems question. like it seems like a fascinating place. There's there's <laughs> a um I'm I'm so not answering this question. Um there's <laughs> a uh <laughs> There, there's a mission going out to pluto right now mm-hmm. called new horizons and it's gonna reach pluto later this year and take pictures and and observe the the, the pluto and and share on the the sort of a companion and the the moons going around and that's going to be really really interesting so watch out for that it's called new horizons it was launched when pluto was still considered a planet and <laughs> i'm not sure it would have been if it was only a dwarf planet but we're going out there we're going to see it and it's going to be great because if you if you actually look up like pictures of Pluto um it's like we we know almost nothing about what it looks like but we actually know quite a lot about like its atmosphere we've taken spectra it's 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 got this this crazy atmosphere that might or might not sort of freeze solid in the winter I mean it's a really fascinating place so officially it is a dwarf planet um (laughs) but it's still really interesting and we we shouldn't we shouldn't hold that against it
0: we'll have to get Alan Boyle out who's a local area resident who wrote the case for Pluto Mm-hmm. Uh, he's pro. He's pro Pluto, and I was at a rally. Of course, I'm so pro Pluto. I just right. you know. It's a very confusing thing. My children are very confused. Like eight, nine, fourteen, twenty-three. We're just not. We're not sure entirely. There's a question about what are you? What you're most uh, coming from Twitter? Thank mm-hmm. you, Evan Quinter. What are you most excited for in terms of space exploration? this year and you've answered that question a little bit, but the the other question I want to ask coming out of AAS as well is it seems like all of a sudden I know missions have, have to be planned and set up years ahead of time, but I feel mm-hmm. like there's a lot happening all of a sudden that I was completely unaware of mm-hmm. um, and I follow this a bit and I write about it and I, it feels like there's all kinds of very interesting things happening all over relatively short periods of time. Is that a, a reasonable impression of things happening even this year that excite you?
1: Well, I mean, uh, I mean, I think the most exciting thing this year is, is New Horizons. Um, there's there's a lot going on in, in space right now. Um, I mean, the Rosetta mission is, is fantastic. And so I'm sure you all know they, they sent a probe to a comet and they landed something on the comet first time ever it landed a little funny there was some bouncing but it, it got there that's uh, that's fantastically exciting and that's not done like a lot of you know a lot of the publicity was around the landing where this Philly lander came and landed on the comet and that was a big big excitement but it's actually um, gonna get much more interesting um, later on because the the whole point of, of the Rosetta mission is to follow the comet as it travels around the Sun and um, so it's it's not very close to the Sun now it's 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 approaching the sun it's getting closer and closer as it goes and we know that comets um uh do a lot of you know they blow out a lot of gas they they get bright they develop these uh, tails and everything when they get close to the sun and so we're going to be able to watch that happen from like a few kilometers away um so it's it's going to be Absolutely amazing The I mean the pictures of the comet that are out right now are, are fantastic and we're gonna watch it change over time and When it gets closer to the Sun, it, it's possible that the little Rosetta lander might wake up um, So right now it's it's sort of in shadow um, And it it doesn't have enough power to for it doesn't have enough sunlight to power its solar solar cells But as it gets closer to the Sun that might change and so the lander might wake up and be able to take more pictures and do more Like drilling and stuff on the surface. Um, so, you know, don't forget about Rosetta it's still it's still going and it's it's doing fantastic stuff. You
0: know, I think one of the most exciting stories about um, about things in space, I don't know, with, uh, probes and so forth. Last year was the uh, it was the IC3, the ISCE, which uh, was mm-hmm. the sa- the uh, probe. Well, actually, it's a technically a satellite that was recaptured by citizen scientists with permission of NASA, and they managed to get the tanks to fire. And then it turned out either the benzene had run out. The tanks were empty. Something had happened. They weren't able to get it to fire enough to change its orbit to capture it. But it is the most amazing story. This thing was out there for decades. Mm-hmm. It came back. They went through a piles of red tape uh, and managed to get NASA to actually sign up. Yes, you can fire up the rockets. It's okay. <laughs> and the flight dynamicist who had prepared this in the 1970s had created this amazing loop-de-loop, at a, uh, precessing orbit, this incredible thing that went on for decades. And he was within, I don't know, tens of thousands of kilometers, something that's incredibly precise thing uh, that they'd planned with, you know, doing calculations by hand, computers in the 1970s. And it worked out. It's very exciting to see something like that happen, too. Yeah.
1: I mean, the the orbital um, calculations they do uh, are amazing. I mean, the Rosetta satellite, I think it looped or it went around the sun like five times. It did. Gra- uh, gravitational slingshots around the uh, around the earth and mars uh, multiple times it was just uh, this incredible path and then eventually caught up to the comet and then now it's sort of going around the comet and going in the same orbit as that and that's it's really impressive
0: it's funny well it's, I, there there was uh, i don't know if it was the ic3 it was one of the missions was the first to use the moon as a as a slingshot oh, cool. effect yeah. and uh but that's becoming more common. It's once you know you can do it. It's pra- theoretically practical. Once they've done it in practice, then it becomes a technique that's used. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can. So, it's a question: Is what, what, what's your life philosophy? Because you have such a uh, a broad view of what how the universe works or what the mm-hmm. actual you know physical workings of the universe are.
1: Uh, gosh, that's a hard question. Um, I don't. I'm not sure if I have like a a sort of articulated life philosophy. Um, I think the thing that drives drives me for the most part is trying to understand as much as I can. This is maybe a related thing and not exactly the question you're asking, but um, a lot of people, like I I talk a lot um, to, uh, you know, groups about things like uh, the Copernican principle where, you know, we're not in a special place in the universe. And, and, you know, I know that we're not in the center of our solar system. We're not in the center of our galaxy. Um, All the kind of matter we can see and interact with is 5% of what's out there. You know we're really insignificant in a really big way right like uh, in terms of like us as a species and, and and me as a person like hugely insignificant totally um you know lost in the noise and a lot of times when i when i say that you know people think like oh that's that must be really depressing right um to be so unimportant but i think it's actually i think it's actually really amazing and really awesome because i am a really unimportant thing and and our whole You know our whole earth is really unimportant and everything we know about is really unimportant but we can understand these things that are dominating the universe and we can understand the evolution of the universe and we can understand what happened in the first tiny fractions of a second after you know the beginning of creation we can we can see the afterglow of the big bang and study something that happened billions and billions and billions of years ago we can take a census of what the universe is made of to a really high degree of precision. And that is really awe-inspiring. I mean, the amazing thing is is being both so unimportant and so powerful, uh, uh, being able to understand this stuff. And so I find that really inspiring. And I find that really uplifting. And I don't know how that interacts with my life philosophy, but I spend a lot of time in a sort of state of awe and wonder. And uh, just the more you learn about uh, cosmology and how the universe works, you know, the more exciting it is. And and the more you just get to think like how amazing it is that we can understand this stuff at all.
0: question is about a science fiction story in which there are ships having a race using uh, the solar wind as purpo- as propulsion, yeah. Solar sails.
1: Yeah, that's that's totally plausible. Um, I mean, you there's, so I don't know what's in the works right now, but there have definitely been proposals to use solar sails as as propulsion to use that the you know radiation pressure or or particles from the sun uh, to push against massive sails. Um, and uh, as far as I know, it's it's a totally plausible thing to do. Um, I I. Haven't worked on it myself. Um, I, I but I've certainly seen discussions of, of big deployable sails as a uh, as a possibility for for pushing spacecraft out there.
0: There's actually some tests going on at a, uh, on nanosatellites, which are
1: this oh, big yeah. and
0: up to about this big where they're testing they can test certain propulsion systems at a really really small scale and in cost mm. including solar uh, solar wind uh, powered yeah. things and other propulsion systems yeah. which is great this is, this is why I'm very excited about nanosatellites personally because you can test big ideas very yeah, cheaply yeah, yeah.
1: so the question is uh, dark matter doesn't interact with light is it transparent or is it something else it seems to be transparent it seems to not absorb light not reflect light not emit light there are ways in which certain models of dark matter can have some interaction with with light or with electromagnetic radiation, but for the most part it seems like it just does it, it is transparent you you can't you can you can see right through it. but a caveat to that is it does seem to bend space the way that anything that's massive bends space. and so um, if you have a whole a big lump of dark matter, then light will bend around it um, and will be distorted by it. And it's kind of like, if you look through, you know, one of those sort of wavy glass windows, uh, you can't see the, the glass, but you can see the distortion of the stuff behind it. And so you can you can tell that it's there and you can kind of tell the shape of it, even though it's transparent itself. And so dark matter is transparent in, in, in that kind of way.
0: question is uh, about the Fermi paradox, about whether we're alone in the universe, why we haven't found other. There's a question online exact, at this moment. Someone asked the same question. <laughs> Are we alone in the universe because we haven't found anything yet? You know, as part it's yeah. part of that question, I think
1: yeah i i don't know the resolution of this like there's this idea that if if intelligent life is out there you know the time scale it takes intelligent life to uh spread out through the galaxy and and form a galactic civilization is smaller than the time it it has we've had uh, since the first intelligent life could have evolved um and we have we see no evidence of that certainly you know i i don't know i don't know so so there's this there's this famous drake equation which is this equation that sort of quantifies how likely it is that we'll be able to communicate with another civilization and there are a number of factors that go into that some of them are things we kind of know like how many stars are in the galaxy and how many stars have planets things that we don't know are things like how many of those planets are habitable how many of those habitable planets have life how many how much how how many of those planets with life get intelligent life and how many of those intelligent life forms decide to build radio telescopes or some other technology that we can talk to and then the final term in that is how long does a a civilization capable of communicating last before it destroys itself or is destroyed by something else and any number of those terms could be such that the number of species out there that we can uh, communicate with is just really really small so it might be that that it's a small number and they're far away and you know it's just that that life is really rare or it could be that life is not rare but it destroys it gets destroyed really quickly either through its own means or through things like supernovae or gamma ray bursts going off and and killing everything uh within 100 light years um that might be the solution i really don't know and i would love to find out and i think it's i think it's a really interesting question and my instinct is that there has to be other life out there like i i think it seems crazy that like we would be the only instance of life evolving in the universe uh, and uh, even given the fact that there might have to be a lot of coincidences you might have to have a big satellite to give you tide pools or you might have to have the right mix of chemicals and the right kind of atmosphere and be in the right spot in orbit it still seems like um there's so many planets out there that there's probably life somewhere else but how nearby it is, I don't know. And how likely those other civilizations are or other life forms are to want to talk to us. Um, I mean, that's a big question, right? Or maybe they want to talk to us, but they use a different technology than we do, or they don't, they don't have metal on their planet. So they can't build radio telescopes, but they have these immense structures built of sand. I mean, I don't know, you know, Um, so it's, I I can't answer, but um, I I wish that I, I
0: knew that i recommend. Uh, I'm always recommending science fiction instead of uh, sure. nonfiction books. You can recommend nonfiction books. There's a, a pair of books. It's uh, "The Anvil of Heaven" and the, and "The Forge of God" that answer some or don't answer the question, but they deal with the issue about would all other life in the universe be hostile to all other life <laughs> in the universe, or uh, or want to uh, further spread it, and, and how that might work out in practice on our planet. The Question is about that we're looking for life that matches our carbon-based biology. What about life that is uh, something other?
1: Um, I mean, we don't, you know, we don't know. Uh, we, talk about, we talk about habitable planets as being planets with liquid water. That's not necessarily uh, what it takes. I mean, what you really need for life is you need an energy source, an energy gradient. So you need a change in energy from one place to another. And you need uh, some kind of fluid through which things can move in order to come together and do chemistry. Um, and you need molecules being able to form how those can come together in different ways, we don't really know. I mean, we've only ever seen uh, life that's based on, on strings of DNA and RNA, basically, right? So it's not at all clear um, whether we should be thinking outside the box a little bit more. But what we look for when we look for signs of life are not necessarily too closely related to the sort of basic building blocks of those life. I mean, we look for signs in the atmosphere of non-equilibrium chemistry so chemistry that would require some kind of ongoing uh process to create that chemistry so we look for signs of like excess methane or something um where you would need to be constantly replenishing that supply in order for it to be there that doesn't necessarily assume something about the life it just assumes that there's something other than the natural processes we understand um being basically you know sunlight and, and volcanism um the, the uh, driving some kind of chemistry we also look for signals um, in electromagnetic radiation which maybe a silicon-based life form has radio telescopes too uh, so i don't know um but i think that you know it's certainly good to have an open mind but we also have to start from what we know to look for things that are similar to us just so that we're not looking for absolutely everything because uh, you can't really do that
0: well we're uh we're getting close to the end here, I think, and we've gone a little over so let me ask uh one more question. This comes from uh, my friend Alana on the East Coast, who may still be listening to us late at night here is uh my non science friends are blase to recent international space adventures. How can I get everyday people excited about the cosmos
1: i mean it's it's just it's just fundamentally amazing <laughs>
0: <laughs> listen to this talk That's yeah
1: I mean funny. i it's uh, it's hard to say I don't uh, I don't know how to get people who are not excited about us reaching out into the cosmos and sending things into space and observing other worlds and, you know, exploring what's out there and the the possibilities of of, you know, all of creation. I don't know how to get people who are not already excited about that excited about that. I mean there are lots of strategies people use talking about stuff like uh technology that spins off of space programs and how you know we we learn new things about um about new technologies or we get new ideas out of trying to solve problems that you have to solve in order to go to space and to do um you know astronomy and cosmology and stuff like that so you can go from angles like that but i mean i think it's really just about sort of giving people access to that sense of awe and wonder you know i mean the other day, uh, so I, I'm on Twitter and I, I talk a lot about space and, and space exploration and science on Twitter. And the other day, I uh, somebody tweeted a photograph of uh, one of the moons of Saturn uh, against Saturn's rings and and the the you know background of the planet. And I, I I put a little note on that and I retweeted that picture and it got like a thousand retweets. Um, and that's a lot for I mean I don't usually get that many and and it's just because it's it's something absolutely beautiful and alien and and fascinating and and you know just seeing that there's that that's something real that's out there and it's huge and it's really far away and we've been able to get up close and take pictures of it and bring that back i mean that sense of awe and wonder i think everybody feels that when they when they look at this stuff and and i think that it's a matter of like giving people access to those to the things that come out of that exploration and um And letting them see how interesting and intriguing it is and and giving people access that that curiosity and that you know that drive to understand but also just that feeling of like this is so outside my experience and so awesome and so different and i you know i'm i'm privileged to have access to it and and we have access to it because we do space exploration because we fund nasa and and science and and because we get these big programs going and it costs a lot of money but I think the payoff is is always worth it. Um,
0: one, so. one of the, the rubric, not rubrics, one of the, uh, <laughs> the things I heard recently about that that was supposed to excite people, I think was good was, um, we've already colonized Mars just entirely with robots. Yep, yep. Yeah. Well, that's pretty good. Pretty yeah. Good. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for coming out to this. Thank you. This is... It's uh, been a, Turned out that... It far exceeded anything I could hope for Seattle on a Tuesday night. And I appreciate you coming. I want to thank Ada's Books for hosting us and GeekWire at geekwire.com who uh, uh, is going to be hosting this podcast on their site. If you're listening to that, I uh, thank you, GeekWire. Uh, I'm on Twitter, and I don't recommend you following me there because <laughs> I tweet way too much, at Glenn F. That's G-L-E-N-N-F.com, uh, and also at GlennF.com. And thank you to my guest, the wonderful Dr. Mac. Katie Mac can be found online at Astro Katie K I T I K A T I E. Thank you. Thank you, Katie.
1: Thanks. Thank you.